0: It's time for
1: the LaneCast with Montana's very own Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Agriculture Conversation right here on the LaneCast podcast. And today we have a very special guest. He is the Executive Vice President of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, Mr. Jim McGagnon. He's joining us today talking about the 50 years that the Public Lands Council is celebrating here in 2018. Jim, how are you doing today?
0: You know, just doing fine today. It's a beautiful day in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I and, uh, had some damaging hail here over the weekend, but I was out of town, so I consider myself fortunate.
1: Well, at least you won't be having to take your vehicle in to, to get repaired, but all, all all of our thoughts are with all those producers and, and folks in that part of the region that uh, have been impacted by weather. It's been pretty nasty here in the past uh, few weeks for many uh, uh, producers across uh, the Northern Plains and Rocky Mountain West. It June... has
0: been. We even had one of our, our producers here in Wyoming had a tornado set down uh, over the weekend, and as I understand, I don't have a lot of information yet, but basically destroyed their ranch headquarters.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, we'll just keep them in our thoughts and our prayers. And uh, I know rural communities will band together to to help out their uh, fellow brothers and sisters in agriculture, no doubt. So, Jim, thanks for mentioning that, though, because weather impacts so much of the farming and ranching industry. And we are going to be discussing about one of those key components of the livestock industry today. That is, of course, the Public Lands Council. It represents 22,000 public lands ranchers from across the nation, but mainly in the West. And first off, let's talk about your involvement with the Public Lands Council and how the Wyoming Stock Growers works with the Public Lands Council on the state and national levels.
0: Well, going back a little bit, my personal involvement came long before my association with the Wyoming Stock Growers Association. As I recall, I I began to attend some of the Public Lands Council meetings in the, uh, late 70s, uh, 79, 80, right in there, became a little more involved in 81, 82, when the national president was from Wyoming, and and worked my way up, and, and in 89, found myself as president of the PLC, so I served in that capacity for one year. They still hold it against me that I'm the only one term president, and that's because the next year I became president of the American Sheep Industry Association and didn't feel I could do justice to both offices at the same time. So, um, a long history back there with PLC, and and I've always recognized its tremendous value to those of us who are public land. Uh, ranchers in the West.
1: Now you mentioned the American Sheep Industry Association. Uh, The livestock groups uh, include cattle and sheep, so this isn't just uh, talking about one livestock group, it's multiple livestock groups coming together because many Western ranchers are dependent on these public lands. What What would the West look like, Jim, if we did not have ranchers on our public lands and on the Western landscape?
0: Well, there's a couple of things that I can imagine and hope I never have to see. And one, of course, is that uh, the public lands in the West are very much intermingled with uh, private lands, with state lands, and as for the private lands, if if we weren't able to utilize the public lands, many of our western ranching operations would not be viable. So those landowners would necessarily turn to uh, how can they derive an economic return from their private lands, and in many, many cases, the majority, I believe, that would involve subdividing those lands. and So it would change the the whole climate of the West with impacts on recreation, tourism, uh, impacts on wildlife, uh, even here in Wyoming, particularly impacts on our energy industry, as I often like to tell my good friends in the energy industry, would you rather do business with the most cantankerous rancher out there that owns the surface or with a hundred people who each own twenty to forty acres and I think the answer is is normally obvious, so it it would change the culture of the West I think, and the economy of the west in in many ways. Uh, the second part of that is that As we've come to recognize, perhaps it's taken a long time, livestock are a tool for managing these rangelands. And with the presence of livestock out there in a managed way, uh, we enhance the quality of the soil, we enhance uh, vegetation. So uh, we're, we're a positive contributor in many ways beyond just the economic contribution.
1: The Public Lands Council will be having its 50th annual meeting at the end of September in Park City, Utah. I know you will be attending that. I'll be attending it. But we're actually coming up on the actual actual date in which the Public Lands Council was organized. So let's maybe share a little more about how so many people got together to have the forethought to band together to be a voice for public lands ranchers across the West. How did this all take shape, Jim? Well, like
0: so many things that that we do, it it took shape when we felt threatened. And back in the early 60s, uh, under the Kennedy administration, uh, Stuart Udall was named Secretary of Interior, and he set out on a path to really change uh, the relationship between the grazing industry and public lands. He felt that as I understand that uh, we had too much power, too much authority. He wanted to put more emphasis on multiple use and really to weaken the, the public land grazing component of the management of public lands. And uh, he did that early on in part through what was known as the National Advisory Board Council for the Department of Interior, uh, which had been uh, frankly, I think, somewhat dominated by the grazing industry, and he made appointments, made changes to to affect that. And then the, the big issue was the creation of the Public Land Law Review Commission, which was uh, a major effort to, to look at and revise the way public lands were managed. And, and uh, the ranch community felt threatened about their ability to retain their permits. Uh, they were directly threatened with a proposed significant increase in the grazing fee on public lands uh, with the loss of their um, inherent um, preferences to hold those grazing permits. And and that whole range of issues uh, caused some key people in the industry, some of the leaders, to say this is is growing beyond what we can handle through our traditional ag organizations that have a whole host of other obligations to serve the ranching community, be it the cattle industry, the sheep industry. Uh, we need we need something that's more focused on this. Uh, two people that that really led those early discussions that resulted in formation of the PLC were Gene Echart from up in Glasgow, Montana, who was on the uh, Public Land Arby Review Commission, and Floyd Lee from New Mexico. Uh, who'd also been a leader on public land issues. So from the north to the south, people began to come together on that and started those discussions. I held a few preliminary meetings and, um, as a result, decided that they needed to form uh, an organization uh, to focus on this. So while we're celebrating our 50th anniversary on August 6th, Uh, That that date is the date of incorporation of PLC, but certainly a lot of the work uh, involved in the formulation of the organization had gone on for at least two years uh, prior to that date.
1: Jim, there's the rumor that Gene and Floyd actually uh, got the idea and really laid the groundwork at Old Ebbets Grill in Washington, D.C. Is that correct? Do you know that story?
0: Uh, I think that is the story. That's the story I've always been told. And and in my earlier days of going back to DC with Public Lands Council leadership, we frequented Old Ebbets Grill, and that's that's always been the uh, two places that are associated with PLC. Old Ebbets Grill with the founding, and the Holiday Inn North in Denver, which is no longer in existence, as I understand. That was for many many years the place of the annual PLC fall meeting.
1: Well, if anyone, I, and I always encourage everyone when they go to D.C., you know, you have the, your landmarks, the museums, and I just say always go to Old Ebbets Grill. So much has been uh, discussed there, and so many deals have been made by politicians, by leaders and organizations just like the PLC, so I, I am right in saying you need to hit the Old Ebbets Grill up. I just think that's a great story in tying in how Washington, D.C., why we need organizations like the Public Lands Council being a voice for the ranchers that are hard at work out here in the countryside. And uh, it's five decades later. Let's maybe talk about, from that founding, how it began to develop. How did the membership start to unroll? How did we get these state associations involved in the membership of all these public lands grazers from all the multiple states across the West and other parts of the U.S.?
0: Well, I think that uh, after Ed and Lee had their initial conversation, they reached out to several of the sheep and cattle associations across the West, and, and there were um, people from every one of those states who came together, had some preliminary meetings. Uh, if you read the list of those names, which I happen to have in front of me, a lot of them are familiar names in the industry, uh, some of whose uh, successors continue today, and uh they, they just had that discussion and said, we need to really embrace this. Uh, they settled on two things that were, I think were very important. The first was, of course, it took money. So they reached out to the uh, various states, all of those, the 13 Western states, as they were at that time considered to be a part of it. And with an assessment of, I believe it was five cents in AUM, and they raised about $150,000 uh, to get the organization started. And amazingly, if, until just in the last 10 years, uh, the budget of PLC on the annual basis was not a lot bigger than that. It maybe doubled, but it didn't, didn't grow proportionate to inflation or anything. So that was collecting money to start it was one big thing. The other, I think, important thing they did, they knew they needed a, a voice in D.C on an ongoing basis and they identified a fellow by the name of Joseph Tudor who had actually been in the solicitor's office in the Interior. He was an attorney back there and they hired him to be the what we would call today the lobbyist uh, for PLC and he'd been in federal government since the 1930s and had been a specialist on grazing and public land law and so he he was a natural fit there to get all of this started.
1: What do you think has been one of the biggest uh, changes that the PLC has gone through in the past 50 years?
0: Well, you know, first of all, what isn't a change, I would say, and that is many of the issues the PLC works on today. If you read the reports of what the issues were back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and what the issues are today, uh... There's not a lot of change. I mean, we still deal with grazing fee issues. We still deal with permit stability issues, uh, access issues. A a lot of that is is unchanged. Uh, Maybe the one change in that arena would be that there's more broader public use of the public lands in the West than there was in those days. And so more uh, potential for conflict with recreational and other uses of the land. But... uh, as far as the organization itself, it was really pretty stable all those years uh, had a great diversity of leadership from across all the western states, uh, several good executive directors over time and so from from my perspective today, the one big change I have to point to is when we were successful in creating the public lands uh, trust as a result of the uh, proposed construction of the Ruby Pipeline from southwestern Wyoming to uh, Oregon.
1: Also, we would have seen the Endangered Species Act really start to take shape and outgrow the scope of what that act was supposed to be in helping species recover. And we know it's just a litigation tool most of the time for radical environmentalists. And uh, that's another issue that the PLC works on. And really, that wasn't even on on the minds of ranchers at that time. Can we maybe talk about how even the ESA has changed in its scope and how the PLC has been a strong advocate for its reform?
0: Well, you know, uh, it's somewhat fortuitous that PLC was started in '68. And just two years later in 70, we had passage of the National Environmental Policy Act, which has had huge implications for us. That was followed two years later by Endangered Species Act. Then we had the Clean Water Act and, and any other number of environmental statutes that were passed in the early part of the 70s that all of them have have posed challenges for public land grazing and, and challenges that uh, PLC has uh, met head on, so, and, and ESA is certainly one of those. I mean, uh, quick to acknowledge that the impacts of the Environmental Species Act are broader than public lands, broader than the 13 western states, and, and, you know, you think of Hawaii with over 400 listed species, and some of the states in the southeastern U.S. have more listed species than we do in the west, but in terms of livestock grazing, uh, clearly the, the real threats out here have come from Uh, the predator species beginning back with the bald eagle and and more recently with uh, wolves and grizzly bears and then other iconic species like the sage grouse today, uh, lesser prairie chicken and further south than than I am here in Wyoming. And so all of those in areas where there's public land grazing have had uh, some level of, of impact on grazing and in my mind at least, certainly would have had a much more severe impact had it not been for the work of PLC uh, in conjunction with our other national uh, ag organizations, livestock organizations, and, of course, the states working hand-in-hand with them.
1: So the PLC was started and really got the idea rolling in Washington, D.C. at Old Ebbets Grill. The first meeting was held in Denver. And so I'm just assuming that the head office used to be in the West. Was it in Denver?
0: To the extent that it had, it really didn't have a head office. The, the, the office, for all practical purposes, was, I believe, always in okay. D.C. Uh, the executive was in D.C., uh, shared office space with NCBA, and, and at one point the National Wool Growers, because all, all of those groups were in the same office space back in those early days. Uh, but the, the gentleman uh, out here in the West who really was very involved and um, helped pull it together was, was Bill McMillan, the executive vice president of American National Cattlemen's, and he had an office in Denver, and so he, he's the one who registered it as a Colorado nonprofit corporation and uh, oversaw uh, sort of that part of it, the, the administrative part of it, uh, out of the, the Denver office.
1: So how do you see, 50 years later, the way information is exchanged is completely different? Social media has changed how correct and factual information is shared, and there's a lot of misinformation that sways people's opinions on uh, social media and other news platforms. But but how do public lands grazers, how do they share their story, in your opinion, with the public? Because a lot of the time you see Facebook posts, there'll be people hiking through the mountains, and there might be some sheep that are on some grazing allotments up in the mountains for a few weeks in the summertime, and people think they're just being so destructive to the land. When they're actually making that land better, they're improving it. Well, where, do, where do you see public lands ranchers? How do they communicate effectively with the public?
0: Well, that's as obviously has changed as as you've indicated, and and I'm frankly not bashful about criticizing our industry, uh, especially the Western public lands industry, including myself, for having gone far too long when we didn't think we needed to educate the public. We knew what we were doing. We were caring for our livestock. We were caring for the land. And uh, why was it anyone else's business? And we've evolved into this information age when those things have become everyone's business. And for so long, we didn't tell our story and therefore the, the so-called fake news, but we didn't have that term around then, but the incorrect information that was being put out by others or just lack of information is what was driving uh, public uh, views on livestock ranching in general and public land grazing in particular so it's really only been in the last 10 years again back to the creation of the public lands trust that PLC has had the resources to enable it to to engage in a very positive way on telling the story of public land ranching and I think they're doing a tremendous job in my view but uh, we've got a lot of catching up to do and it's not uh, easy to tell that story Now, Jim, when when there's so much misinformation out mm -hmm.
1: there. And and also with that, Jim, there's quite a lot of very dedicated uh, members of whether it's the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, the Wyoming Wool Growers or other state affiliates that are involved with the Public Lands Council. But how do we get younger ranchers, livestock producers that graze on public lands, how do we get them in the, into the room? This is a question that's asked at so many association meetings every single year. How do we get these younger people involved? Because we need people involved that are my age that are going to be the future. They're going to be the ones attending the 100th Public Lands Council annual meeting in in. in over the past uh, few decades, how have you seen younger people become uh, more involved with PLC and how do we improve upon that looking down the road?
0: You know, I think one of the real challenges that PLC has had is that it's a national organization. I mean, yes, there are state affiliates that support it financially that elect board members and that, but it doesn't have uh, its own identified groups in every state. It's more so in some states than others, but so one of my beliefs, based on my work here at Wyoming Stock Growers, is that we have to engage people initially at a very local level, and then they begin to see the value of moving up uh, into state organizations and national organizations, national leadership. And so uh, it, it's not an easy task. We struggle with it here at Wyoming Stock Growers. We've tried a number of avenues. Right now we have what we call our young producers uh alliance and that seems to be engaging more young people and but uh just looking going to a PLC annual meeting or spring meeting in DC and looking around the room, most of us have gray hair or no hair and it's intimidating for young people to uh come into an atmosphere like that. Um, and and one feel that they're welcomed to feel that their ideas uh, are valued, and so that's one challenge. The other challenge is just the fast-paced life that we have today, and these young people with families and school activities and community activities, uh, it's a challenge to get them away. So I don't, I don't have an answer, but I do know that, the, and we've had this discussion at PLC, uh, we need to make a far more concerted effort to bring those people in respect where their perspectives are going to be a little different than ours simply based on the generational change, uh, but yet make them feel that they can make a difference in the organization. Uh, in the old days, maybe it was not unusual to get into an organization and be involved in 30 years before you could move up into leadership. Uh, in today's world, that doesn't work. And, and frankly, I... Uh, hold myself out as somewhat of an example of what can be done and only as a way to tell people that I went to my first PLC meeting in in um, the late 70s, early 80s, and by 89 I was president. So uh, if you show an interest and get to be respected by people, it, it you don't have to spend a 40-year career before you can rise to a leadership position in these organizations. And Jim,
1: I just want to echo that to all of our listeners listening to the Lanecast here today. Whether you are a public lands rancher or just involved in agriculture, you need to become involved. And there's so many ag organizations out there that will fit your thought process and your philosophy. Uh, I just always encourage people to join and don't point fingers at each other. Because in agriculture, we get too tied up in that sometimes. and, And really, consumers really don't pay attention to the ag organizations. They all think we We belong to, we're just farmers and ranchers. They don't even see the ag organizations and all the hard work they do on behalf of farmers and ranchers. But if you are a young livestock producer that has public lands allotments, I would encourage you to maybe take the time to head on down to Park City, Utah, September 26th through the 29th. Park City is going to be beautiful any time of the year, but in September it's going to be great if you get a chance to get away from the operation and become involved with the Public Lands Council or if your state livestock association has the opportunity to have a state affiliate or or Public Lands State Council, I would just encourage you to do that because at the end of the day, the future moves really fast. It's It's going to be amazing 50 years from now what our Public Lands ranching situation looks like, and I know it's going to look very good, and people are going to be in a good position because of the Public Lands Council and all the hard work from its crew in Washington, D.C., and all of its rancher leaders. Jim, do you have anything else to add on that subject of it, as I just had my little rant?
0: You know, I would just concur with what you've said, Lane. Uh, we as an industry in the West are we are pretty darn independent people, and that's one of our greatest strengths, and at times it's one of our liabilities. And Getting us to pull together sometime is a challenge and uh, there was a, a note from the early days of p l c that I think is still true today that each state took turns threatening to withhold their fair share of money when they didn't see things going their way, and you know i'm one of one of my embarrassments, even though I wasn't directly involved at the time, was back in the <laughs> uh mid-90s that Wyoming dropped their PLC membership at a time, in fact, that a Wyoming rancher was president of PLC because they were unhappy with the direction the organization went on some particular issue. Uh, New Mexico did the same thing. They're one of the clear founding members, and they've never come back into PLC. And Every time one of those things happens, it sets us back, and there's a cost to our industry. So I just urge people to come. I can give them every assurance from my years of involvement with p l c that that their voice is always welcome they 'll be listened to uh and uh respected and certainly uh Park City being sort of in the heart of the western public land country is a great opportunity for uh, new people to come and particularly young people for a fiftieth anniversary celebration uh they can't come for all three days, come for a day, and, and that will help them to decide whether they see a value in keeping a strong PLC uh, going for the next 50 years during their time of of managing these ranches and leading the industry. And I have no doubt that they will see that value if they take the time and to And just up. the
1: officials from different agencies and those appointed officials from Washington, D.C., it was amazing last year when I attended the public lands council annual meeting down in Flagstaff, Arizona, just how many of these decision makers show up to attend the event. I, I was just blown away. And, and also, I thought it was pretty neat. And maybe you could explain this a little more. The uh, the memorandum of understanding that PLC signs with the BLM. Could you talk about that and the significance that really plays uh, for the livestock industry that grazes on public lands?
0: Sure, PLC was successful quite a number of years ago of entering into an MOU with, with BLM and the Forest Service, specifically related to rangeland monitoring. And as you know, having good data is, is key in this day and age to defending the use we make of these public lands. And to be able to do that in a collaborative manner that involves the rancher, involves the federal land agency. May involve others as well is is so important and and PLC uh, was able to work that out and I know that's become kind of the pattern for some more localized ones. Uh, we here, here at Wyoming Stock Growers and Wyoming Wool Growers have an MOU with the Forest Service that actually uh, says we will get together and do certain things together and and we will be doing here a little later in August uh, our second annual a uh, range tour with the Forest Service and discussions based on that MOU so uh, there, there's an opportunity and, and particularly an opportunity today because I think we have uh, in those federal agencies uh, some leadership that's anxious to build relationships with the people on the land whether it's the grazing permittees or the uh, sportsmen or, or whomever they are but uh, so we, we need to seize on those opportunities.
1: Jim, I have one last question, then I'll give you the floor to, to share any more of your thoughts on the 50 years of PLC. But my last question is, where do you see the Public Lands Council heading in the next 50 years?
0: Well, I I see a, a bright future for the Public Lands Council in two ways. One, as I mentioned, it now has some financial stability. I mean, it still needs the support of the ranching community, of every public land rancher out there. And, and my biggest disappointment is and we happen to here in Wyoming conduct the annual fundraising to support our state's membership in PLC. Uh, we don't fall short on raising the dollars that we have to have, but we fall extremely short on the level of participation of public land grazing permittees. And that's so true in many of our industry organizations. If everyone would step up to the plate, it takes very few dollars from anyone to get the job done. But when only a few step up, and they pick up the tab for everyone else who benefits equally uh that that's a, that's a sad thing to me and that's that's very disappointing. I wish we had an answer to it but you know with the right financial resources uh with p l c being amenable to leading changes that are changes that benefit our industry uh you know, I look back on sixty years of being a public land livestock rancher and uh Business isn't done today the way I did it uh, back in the 60s, and PLC has adapted to change. Uh, public land ranching won't look the same in in 2068, so uh, the nice thing about our organizations is that with changes in leadership to reflect changes on the land, Uh, we can be adaptable and we can continue to be meaningful.
1: Well, Jim McGaig, now thank you so much for taking a little bit of time and setting that foundation of what the Public Lands Council looked like 50 years ago. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience here today?
0: I would just urge them to go to the Public Lands Council website, uh, look at the information with regards to what the organization does and certainly in regards to this upcoming uh fiftieth anniversary celebration in Park City, Utah and and make some plans to attend. Lane, you and I can talk all day about the value of PLC that's not the same as is coming to the table and experiencing value.
1: That is very correct. Again, thank you for for sharing some history on the PLC. Jim McGegna, Executive Vice President of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, and he will be down in Park City, Utah, September 26th through the 29th for the 50th Annual Meeting of the Public Lands Council. To learn more about the Public Lands Council and all their hard work in Washington, D.C. and in the countryside here in the West, just visit them today at thepubliclandscouncil.org. That'll do it for today. Thanks for joining the Agriculture Conversation. Until next time, I'm Lane Nordland, your voice for agriculture. Thank you
0: for tuning in to the Cast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and nordlandcommunications.com Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look
1: forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.